First Nephi chapter 13, verse 16. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity did humble themselves before the Lord, and the power of the Lord was with them. This goes hand in hand with an oft-repeated declaration in the Book of Mormon, where it says that, uh, you know, this is a promised land, and if you keep the commandments, you'll be blessed, and if you don't keep the commandments, I will wipe you off the face of this land. Um, God has promised some portion of the Americas, one, one assumes north and south, but the, the exact geographical boundaries have not been drawn. But nevertheless, he has set aside and consecrated uh, a portion of this hemisphere to be his promised land. And it was his intent that whoever held the land should be obedient to him and uphold his commandments. This was the case in particular with the Mayflower pilgrims who, 400 years ago, arrived in Cape Cod and began to fulfill a prophecy of a book of scripture that they didn't even know existed. This is Welcome to the Faro, episode 26, Semper Libertas. It wasn't immediately my intention to keep going with this podcast. It was going to just be about my mission in that first year home. But occasionally, uh, I should have reason to put together uh, a talk like I'm about to do just now. And uh, I feel like this is a good venue to share it, to at least have it out in cyberspace where I can link to it and send it to people and they can listen to it at their leisure. Um, in this case, uh, I am preparing a talk which I will give tomorrow in sacrament meeting. Right now it is the 21st of November, 2020. It's about 10 o'clock at night. I'm just going over my talk again. And I figured I would uh, record it here and pass it along. Uh, there's a lot that I wanted to talk about on this particular subject. Um, I am the, the secretary for my ward, and uh, we just had a change in the bishopric, and as the new bishopric was figuring out uh, sacrament meeting subjects and, and so on for the coming weeks, I volunteered to speak on this particular Sunday um, and even volunteered this particular subject because it's something that I've been thinking about for the past year. Uh, it is directly related to the verse in First Nephi 13 that I just read you, but uh, we'll shake it all down and, and uh, it'll all come together here as, uh, as the talk unfolds. So, without further ado, this month marks 400 years since the Mayflower left Dover, England and arrived in what is now Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, over the last year, I've read a few books about the voyage, the passengers on the ship, and the trials they faced in the early years at Plymouth. Combined with a study of the gospel, these histories helped to strengthen my testimony of our Heavenly Father and the fact that he is omniscient, omnipotent, and full of love for his children. The last time I spoke in sacrament meeting, I cited the book Lectures on Faith, written by the prophet Joseph Smith in the 1830s. In it, President Smith teaches that in order for us to have faith in God, 
we need to correctly understand his characteristics. As I tell you a series of stories today, I want you to focus on the fact that God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and God has a plan for us. He always has. Our understanding of life is very linear. We're born, we live, we die. We only have so much time before we go back home to our Father. Time is the one thing that we can never get back. You can't stockpile it, you can't purchase it for the future, and all you're really guaranteed to have is now, at least from our mortal perspective. But God is not mortal. Time doesn't matter as much to a being that is eternal. He is the author of our entire existence. So when he tells us something through his prophets, you can have all confidence that it's going to happen. When he commands us to do something, you can have all faith that it's the right thing to do. It's the next step in the plan. A few weeks ago, my kids asked us why we have Thanksgiving. Uh, I drew it out on a pad of paper for the boys so they could see the timeline of it. Uh, the pilgrims celebrated the first Thanksgiving in 1621. Then George Washington urged the nation to celebrate it in 1789. Abraham Lincoln officially made it a holiday in 1863. And Franklin D. Roosevelt set it on the fourth Thursday in November in 1941. Uh, the key event is that first Thanksgiving. Dates on paper only tell you the when. They don't tell you the why. Why did they have a huge feast and give thanks to God? What were they thankful for? Why was it so important that the tradition endured from William Bradford to George Washington to Abraham Lincoln to FDR to now? Well, I know it's Sunday, but right now you're in history class and Mr. Brother Bradley has a lesson for you. The pilgrims were religious separatists in England. In those years, England didn't have religious liberty as we understand it. You were commanded by the king to go to the Anglican church, and if you practiced anything contrary to it, you were punished. Many of the separatists disagreed with the Anglican church, though. William Bradford and William Brewster were religious scholars in their day, and they noticed that a great deal of Anglican practices were not in keeping with the original Church of Jesus Christ, which was, by then, over 1,500 years gone. As they tried to gather congregations together to worship God as they saw proper, they faced heavy pushback. They were fined, they were hunted down and imprisoned. If some of their offenses were severe enough or repeated enough, they had their land taken from them. Uh, one separatist, even, a man named Moses Fletcher, was excommunicated from the Church of England because after his son died, Fletcher buried him without performing Anglican rites. It was bad. Hundreds of these separatists tried to leave England and set up a church in Leiden, Holland, but this was difficult too. They couldn't always trust the captains of the ships they hired to take them there. Sometimes these captains would take payment from the separatists, then turn them into authorities for a bounty. The separatists were, effectively, spiritual prisoners in England. They succeeded in Holland for a time, but that experiment had its own problems to the point where they thought, hey, you know that, uh, that new world that the Spanish found a hundred years ago? Why don't we just go over there? Couldn't be any harder than here. So they got their resources together, they hired a couple of ships, and in July of 1620 they set out. Immediately, one of the ships, the Speedwell, started to take on water, so they had to leave it behind and cram extra passengers onto the Mayflower. Uh, 
By the time they got underway, they were two months behind schedule, and it took another two months to show up at Cape Cod. They spent two months crammed into the tween decks of a ship that wasn't really big enough to hold them. Uh, the clearance down there was about five feet. If you were taller than that, you had to go above decks to stretch your back and get some fresh air. Frequent storms and rough seas made that dangerous, though. If you fell overboard, you were a goner. Their food was bad. Their water was worse. Uh, in fact, they drank beer because the alcohol kept it from getting slimy like their water. The Mayflower pulled into Cape Cod on November 10th, 1620. A day later, the Separatists drafted the Mayflower Compact, their founding document. It declared that they were English and that James was still their king, but they were here in the Americas to serve and worship God. Interesting fact about that, the calendar that they used back then was 10 days off compared to the calendar we use now. So the real date of the Mayflower, excuse me, the Mayflower Compact signing is today, November 21st. Um, you know, the date of this recording. Their problems weren't over yet. They had to build houses in a brutal northeastern winter. In the first few months in America, half of the 100 pilgrims died from cold or starvation. In March of 1621, they finally made contact with a local tribe of natives, the Wampanoags. One of them, a Patuxet named Squanto, spoke fluent English and was able to translate between the two peoples. He taught them how to grow crops in American soil, and that summer they had a huge, plentiful harvest. So when the following autumn came around in 1621, you can see why this highly spiritual people, who had been tried by God and had suffered incredible losses in the quest for religious freedom, threw a huge feast of gratitude for getting them through that first year. Why does all of this matter to us today, though? What does it have to do with an omniscient God? How does it fit into the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the details of this story are nothing short of miraculous. See it from the big picture perspective that our all-knowing God sees. Earlier this year, you got to read 1 Nephi 13. In that chapter, you read about Nephi getting a vision from an angel while he was still in Arabia. Nephi saw the promised land. He saw a thousand years of Nephites and Lamanites fighting each other in the Americas. He saw the resurrected Christ appear to the Nephites, and then he saw the Nephites ultimately go wicked, and they all died. He saw Moroni bury the record of his people in the hill Cumorah. Another thousand years went by, and then Nephi saw some stuff that is a little more recent in our memory. He saw the Bible, he saw Columbus, then the Pilgrims, then the American Revolution, and most important, the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It must have been a huge stretch of time for Nephi to comprehend, and yet to the omniscient God it was just another page or two in his grand story, and it was full of small miracles that very few people noticed at the time. Remember how I said the tween decks of the Mayflower were cramped and the seas were rough? Well, one night during the voyage, a man named John Howland went above decks, probably to catch some fresh air and stretch his legs. He was about 20 years old, traveling with the Carver family, for whom he worked. Strong guy, young, healthy, all that. At some point during his stroll, he fell overboard and into the Atlantic. Normally, this was a death sentence. The Mayflower was no speedboat. It couldn't stop on a dime. There were no life preservers, and the pilgrims weren't exactly swimmers. 
However, dangling from the side of the ship was a rope, uh, a tagline from what I think was a top spar. According to protocol, that rope should have been tied off to a cleat on the boat, and normally it would have been. Somehow it was loose, and it was there in the water for John Howland to grab. He snatched it up and held on for literal dear life, even being dragged t ten feet under the surface until others on deck could reel him in and save his life. He survived an accident that absolutely should have killed him. In fact, this was how William Bradford's wife Dorothy died just a few weeks later. Why is that a miracle? Because John Howland would go on to marry Elizabeth Tilly. The entire Tilly family died that first winter except for their daughter Elizabeth, who was 13. John and Elizabeth were direct ancestors, great-grandparents of Joseph Smith, who would be born almost two centuries later. Some crew member of the Mayflower left a tagline loose one time, and it ended up being another miracle. Even then, the Pilgrims might have all died out if the Wampanoags hadn't helped them. Squanto was a miracle in his own right. He'd been captured by slavers in 1614 and taken back to Europe, where he was sold in Spain. There, a group of monks freed him and got him passage to England, where he worked for a gentleman and learned the English language. Years later, he was able to return to Massachusetts, but by then his tribe had all died from disease. He ended up moving in with the Massasoits, who met the Pilgrims not long after. His life was tragic, and yet he became an instrument in God's hands, perhaps without ever knowing it. His presence there was a miracle. God knows what he is doing. All of this was part of the vision Nephi saw, even if he didn't see every single exact little detail. God showed him the Mayflower, showed him the Book of Mormon coming forth, and then it happened. His plans won't be foiled. This is an incredible thing to me. It's why I continue to have faith in his promises. Did the pilgrims know what a huge role they played in bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world? I doubt it. They were committed to God and they put in the work and God gave the increase. Now, here we are. What does this mean for us today? Well, it means three things. Number one, God has a plan for us, the plan of salvation. It's currently in action, and we, as covenant makers, are part of it. Two, Jesus Christ was always the key part of that plan. The atonement and the resurrection couldn't have been done by anyone else, and now we get to make covenants in his name. We know what those covenants are because of the restoration of his gospel. And number three, God knows everything that we know and everything that we don't know. He is able to do anything and everything because he has all power. And on this last point, let me emphasize this. When we're looking for miracles, let us open our minds and our spirits to what those miracles may be. The preservation and translation of the Book of Mormon, that was a miracle. The preservation of the Bible over the years, also a miracle. The survival of the pilgrims, Joseph Smith's first vision, the gospel filling all the world, Miracles. Look at how the church is growing in South America, in Africa. Look at the recent temple announcements in places that have never had them before, including Russia and India. This is the work of a divine author who knows his story. The story that he is writing backwards and forwards. We are all in that story. 
and our happy ending is dependent on our covenants with God and our daily decisions to follow Jesus Christ. We are fortunate to have a history full of examples of people we can look up to, people who lived in harder times than us, in harder conditions than we do, and made harder choices than we've had to in order to keep their commitments to God. Several years ago, I was in the Salt Lake Temple to do an endowment session. While I was waiting to get a proxy name, an American woman approached me and explained that she was there to escort two friends of hers, a man and a woman from Thailand who didn't speak much English. They needed someone to take a family name through an endowment session for them. I agreed to. I don't remember the Thai couple's name, but the proxy name I had was Wong Bwapun. After the session, when I returned the name slip to them, the American woman told me that family history was very difficult for this couple. I guess where they were from, the government didn't keep official genealogy records, that it was up to each family to do so, and if they were poor, it was hard to keep track of. The husband was going through for his father, and after that, the only other name he had was his grandfather's, which I had used. As I reflected on the history of the Mayflower, even going so far as to discover some of my own ancestors on the ship, that Thai couple came to mind, and I pondered on, on their situation. Many of you listening to this talk come from different cultures and countries than I do. You didn't have ancestors on the Mayflower or pioneers who crossed the plains with Brigham Young and settled the Salt Lake Valley. Some of you might even be like the couple from Thailand, lacking information on your ancestors beyond one or two generations. That's fine. That doesn't make us more or less than each other in God's eyes. Um, I didn't know that I had pioneer ancestors until I was 26. Um, you know, it's on my mother's side. We're, we're all pulsifers. Um, so is my wife, incidentally, but we're like ninth cousins, so it's, it's distant enough. Thank you, plural marriages. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, I, I didn't know that until I was 26, and it wasn't until I was 35, 36 that I found out I had ancestors on, on the Mayflower, um, and I'm not talking to just like, you know, distant cousins or whatever. I, I've got that relation with William Bradford and Edward Winslow. But I just found out last week, thanks to an ancestry slash, you know, family search email that sent out, that Henry Sampson was my 12th great-grandfather, a, a direct ancestor of mine. Um, he was a cousin to, uh, to the Tillys. Um, I want to say Edward and Agnes were, were the Tillys' names. Um, you know, he was one of those surviving family members with that group. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that John Howland and Elizabeth Tilly survived because it meant that Joseph Smith could be born and God could use him to be the prophet of the restoration. If he hadn't, uh, you know, I'm sure God would have found another prophet, but that was the one that he had prepared and he had set that way forward. I'm very glad that Henry Sampson survived because it meant that, uh, you know, the right people were there to survive to make my family possible. Um, but these are all things that I found out later in life. You know, the, the formative years of my life in the gospel, you know, in my teens, where I really gained my my testimony, my foundation, the basis there of it. Um, you know, I didn't know any of that stuff. It didn't matter. You know, what what mattered was you know, my personal prayers, my, my individual relationship with my father in heaven, you know, knowing all that stuff, that's what made the difference. 
What truly matters in all of this is that you are children of a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God. He knows your story all the way back to the beginning. And one day, all of the blanks will be filled in for all of us. We will know who we came from, what they went through, what they did to contribute to you being here in this day and in this place. Did John Howland know he was a link in the chain that led to the Prophet Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon? No, but God knew, and that was what mattered. We know that he is going to do his part, making the miracles happen where they need to happen. We have to do everything that we can to keep his commandments, to have faith, to repent constantly, and to keep our covenants until the very end of our lives. When Christ comes again and reigns on the earth during the millennium, we're going to do a lot of family history work for the entire world, every culture, every continent. We have this huge quad of scriptures that covers parts of Israel in the Bible, parts of ancient America in the Book of Mormon, and parts of the United States in the Doctrine and Covenants. Imagine how much more we'll have when everything about everywhere is revealed and made clear. I suspect that the pilgrims on the Mayflower will be just one of a million cases where we see God doing his work to save us. As is true with all covenants, we can have perfect confidence in the fact that God keeps up his end of the deal. We need to always be engaged in keeping up our end. Live the gospel, sustain the prophets and apostles, study the scriptures, and serve your fellow man. Endure your trials. Just as the pilgrims did 400 years ago, you will make it. In closing, I encourage you all to keep journals for your own posterity. Write down as much of your family history as you can. Keep records like the Nephites, like the pilgrims, like the pioneers. You are Latter-day Saints, the covenant people of God. Make sure that those who come after you can learn about those who came before them. We're all one big family trying to make our way home. I conclude this talk by just writing bare testimony in parentheses, which is not really something that I write down in talks because I, I like it to be a little bit more extemporaneous, a little bit more informal. I want to be able to you know, really say what's in my heart at that moment and not just, you know, read words on a page when it comes to, you know, my personal testimony or, or, or conviction. But that's it. God is in charge. He has a plan. We have to trust the plan. And that means doing what's right, even when it's not comfortable to do so. Jesus Christ knew what he had to do. That does not mean that he was looking forward to the pain element of it. Uh, you know, even before it all wrapped up, he was saying, you know, if it be thy will, you know, let this bitter cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, but mine, not my will, but thine be done. Yeah, I had to get that right. Not my will, but thine be done. You know, he, he not only submitted to it, he asked God to forgive those who had done it to him citing their ignorance uh just it's we, we all want to be you know more like jesus christ there are some things that you know i would really have to shed a, a great deal of things that i personally approve of you know in order to uh 
to reach that level. I'm not that forgiving with people, and I should be. I'm, I'm probably quicker to anger than I should be. Um, you know, nevertheless, as in most things, you know, Christ showed us what to do in those in those situations. He showed us to trust the plan. That is it for today, brothers and sisters. I appreciate you, you know, joining in and, and listening to this talk that ran for just a hair over the 15-minute window that I was allotted. So maybe I'll do a find and cut and replace all of the instances of the word and or something just to just to make it really interesting. But thank you for tuning in. I encourage you to read the Book of Mormon, to pray individually, and uh, always keep the faith. Till next time. <laughs>